tell you a hilarious story that happened to me uh, uh, jason and gideon let me introduce gideon before we get started and then and then we're gonna pray before i tell my story okay because oh, man sometimes i'm such a heathen um, okay so welcome to Tradman. <laughs> welcome uh, back everybody yeah welcome back um today we've got a special guest gideon lazar did, did i pronounce your name correct gideon yeah okay so he uh we've got uh, gideon lazar from uh, the Byzantine Scotist. Uh, you can check him out on Twitter, and you have a YouTube channel as well, correct? Yeah. Okay, and today we brought Gideon on to discuss the relationship between uh, the church and science. It's not as much a discussion about, you know, like a young earth and evolution that seems to be going on uh, quite frequently these days. It's just more of uh, what's the relationship between science and the church? What are we allowed to believe and, and study, and what are we have to reject as as Catholics. So before we get into our discussion today, I thought we would, uh, you know, like always, we'll have a prayer, but considering that uh, Gideon here is from the Byzantine Rite, we thought we would uh, start with the Jesus Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. That's like, that is such a beautiful and powerful prayer by the way and and i've had a i had a byzantine priest tell me that it's one of the the shortest most powerful exorcism prayers for that for lay people that that are you know uh, authorized for use among the lay people and uh, i myself have have incorporated there's sometimes when you just don't know what to pray you know like you're you're coming up to communion and you just don't know what to what to pray or what to say or what kind of uh, things to it. So I'll just go over the Jesus prayer over and over and over again. And it's such uh, it's born a lot of fruit in my spiritual life. So I really love that prayer. Okay, and, and so again. we are back now. Um, and I wanted to tell you guys a, a, a personal story that kind of got me thinking about this whole topic. And because um, I know uh, Gideon, you were recently on a very cool episode with uh, on Pints of Aquinas. And um, you guys were having a, a debate about science versus, uh, uh, well, I, I wouldn't say versus, but you guys were having a debate about uh, creation and evolution and things like that. And I got to thinking about the story that I had where in the secular world, uh, we were totally misusing the name of science, in the, but, but talking about how much we loved science at the same time. And it really got me thinking about most people in our world have no idea what science is, what it isn't, but they all talk about it all the time. We're sitting in this, I, I, so I'm an attorney by trade. We're sitting in this waiting room before we can go into court. Nobody's got a mask on. Nobody's, nobody's, you know, caring about COVID so much that, that we all go into the courtroom where the courtroom is bigger. We're all more spread out. And now everybody's got to put the mask on and the mask Pharisees come out, you know, where's your mask? How come you don't have your mask on? Are you wearing your mask properly? What's your temperature? What's this, that, and anything. And I thought as, as the thing, as the COVID gets better, shouldn't the restrictions get less? I mean, I know I'm not a, a virologist or anything like that, but we're, we're, we're going around using this term, like, because we care about the science, we care about the science. And I just think, do you, or or are we are or, or are we coming up with new outward rituals with which to proclaim our 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 virtue and our sanctity, like the like the Pharisees of old? So I thought this would be a good topic to get into, sort of science and religion. And I'll just start by posing the question, and Gideon, feel free to jump in anytime. Science and religion is there a conflict? I think we first have to ask what we even mean when we use the word science, because the way we're using this is in a very modern sense, right? This word science comes from the Latin uh, scientia, which simply means a body of knowledge. So, for example, theology was considered a science. Um, 
mathematics was a science. Any subject area that could be studied was a science. What we say now, though, when we mean science is a certain aspect of natural philosophy, right? So we don't even mean all of what can be known about nature by reason, right? It would be considered traditionally natural philosophy or natural science. Here we even mean only that part of it which can be detected by experiments. And even those experiments we're doing, the methodology we use to do them comes from Francis Bacon. A lot of people don't realize this, but Francis Bacon, when he was creating the modern idea of the scientific method, he called his work on it the new organon, which was essentially the tool, uh, the original organon was written by Aristotle. It was the tools that we use to investigate things by reason. And so the new organon was meant to replace the old organon, to replace Aristotelian logic. And so what is his methodology? Well, first of all, things have to be verified by experiment. I think we can't simply reason two things. He rules out simply logical reason. He also says that when we're considering things, we can only consider efficient and material causality, when traditionally formal and final causality were considered more important than material and efficient causality. So we've ruled out an important aspects of causality that we know from reason. We've ruled out large sections of natural philosophy, and we've ruled out logic, and it's also the natural science's relation to other areas of knowledge. Now, does that mean that this system of investigation is bad? No, it's a very good system of investigation. It's been able to discover quite a lot. The question we have to ask, though, is can it on its own override other areas of knowledge? And that simply can't be the case because all science can, when I'm now using it in the modern sense, all natural science can get at is probabilistically determining different things, right? It can say that no experiment we have yet done has contradicted this. Right. And that's almost never the case that we actually get to something. Usually <laughs> it's the vast majority of experiments have not contradicted it. And we have good reason to doubt the other ones. And so I think, um, but I think there's also like, you just touched on something that I think is important. We talk about what we're really doing is we're applying a scientific method to a particular academic endeavor. And at least it appears to me, what we've noticed is when you apply the scientific method to the study of the processes and functions of the natural, of, of nature, of the natural world, you get a really, you get more and more precise and sort of conclusive uh, answers about your, you know, your experimentations and your hypotheses and whatnot you can apply the scientific method to other academic areas of endeavor, but you also need to realize that be realistic about the types of measurements you're going to get back. So, for example, if I was to apply a scientific method to the study of history, it's not that I won't get any answers. I, I, I will probably get some answers that will give me some insight. But unless you could go back in time and interview Stonewall Jackson, you will not know exactly what he had to say about a, B, C, or D. You can, you can apply a scientific method to glean some things from, 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 from some of his writings to determine, yeah, probably his opinions were this or that based on the time he lived, the, the social strata that he operated in, assuming that he felt the same way other people in his situation did. But you can't know for sure because human beings are, are as dynamic as they are different. Um, so yeah. when, when we apply a scientific method to other academic endeavors, I think we need to be somewhat realistic about the results we're going to yield. Would you say that that's fair? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. And I think we can even look at your earlier example of COVID, right? You can't do an experiment on COVID, right? You cannot say, okay, we're going to take one section of the population and we're going to isolate them and another section of the population and affect them all with COVID and measure the differences, right? right. Well, yeah. we have to, we, we don't have control groups when we're doing ex experiments with COVID. We simply have to let things run out in nature as they can. 
And I well, think, that's I think a it huge pretty, pretty much has, hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, we've tried yeah. all these things, and now, now the, the, the studies from Johns Hopkins saying, yeah, probably none of anything we did did much of anything. I mean... Yeah, but e- even that study, I'm very skeptical of, because we're happy to embrace the study from Johns Hopkins, because it sides with what we generally got through just by using reason. But I think that that experiment has all the same issues as any other experiment on this area is going to have. That you simply are measuring things that are actually happening in the world, and there is no scientific method you can apply to that. Right. There's, no, there's no control group. There's no setting aside different groups and measuring all the variables. There's millions of variables going on here that we can't keep track of all of them. It's essentially just chaos. Now, we can use reasoning to deal with this, right? And that's actually what's being done most of the time. We're using logical reasoning. Well, that's now a step outside of the scientific method. I would actually say it's something that's more trustworthy because we're working from premises that we assume are to be true. And then we reason it necessarily to conclusions. So the results of logic are necessary. They're not probabilistic. Well, any scientific investigation is probabilistic. And most we can say something is likely. We can't say that it's true though. And I think, and, <clears throat> and going back to Catholicism and the Catholic Church, so mm-hmm. um, there's, there has, in many religions, I would say, been a tension between science, or the, the scientific study of nature and revealed truths that are, you know, uh, that are inherent in the religion itself. And one of the things that I've always liked about the Catholic Church is, is that... Um, <laughs> And this is very dicey, and I could get into trouble here, and so I will try not to too hardly. But um, we're not in a cult, right? The, the, the Catholic Church does not do all our thinking for us. and in so the, it, In the modern sense of what we think a cult is, cult is not necessarily a bad thing. Right, but, not, but, not but, like but the Latin the word cultoribus, correct, yeah. but I mean, you know, you know what I'm, I'm saying, like a, yeah. the modern-day cult yeah. type of a thing is what I'm talking about. So the Catholic Church does trust and, and actually we have a moral duty to use our rational faculties um, correctly, uh, no doubt, but we, but it is something that the church requires us to do. So there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of documents, especially more recently in the light of certain scientific discoveries that, um, that say it's not quite as simple as um, uh, just, just looking at, um, uh, revealed truth and then transferring that over to, okay, this is how the natural world um, connects to that. I, I think there are things, um, in the, and I, <clears throat> I go back to the catechism, and if you'll just permit me, there's a, there's a great line yeah. here in the catechism where it says, um, number 390, and how to read the account of the fall. The account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault freely committed by our first parents. So in a sense, we are affirming the Genesis narrative, but in another sense, we're saying some of the details surrounding that might be a little more complicated than what we originally thought. Um, your take, Gideon? Am I, am, I, am I out to lunch? And by the way, I might be. So... <laughs> so- So I think we first need to establish the proper relationship between faith and reason, right? Mm -hmm. That um, we first need, we've we've established earlier, right? That natural science, as what we would now use the term, is not identical to what can be known by reason, right? It probabilistically determines certain things through a particular method of investigation, which is only one of many methods of investigation we can use about the natural world. And I think even then we should realize that most of what's being done in science, there's a great book on this called um, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And Kuhn was actually an atheist, so I'm not drawing up some fundamentalist Christian here to make this point. He walks through the history of science and shows that what's being done mostly in the history of science is what he calls normal science, where we presume a certain paradigm in which we work and we do um experiments on small particular things that are presumed by that paradigm right so if for example we're working in geology and we um find a layer of rocks 
the way we date that layer of rocks is usually there's not actually anything we can radiometrically date in it, but we can find particular fossils in it, know from other rocks that we were able to radiometrically date, that those fossils are from uh, the same time period, and therefore these rocks must have come from that same time period. Now we're presuming quite a lot of stuff there, right? We're presuming that these animals were living at the same time, and that's why they're in the same rock layer. Mm -hmm. We're presuming that the radiometric dates made at the other site were accurate. We're presuming that the method of radiometric dating itself is accurate, which itself then requires multiple assumptions in different fields. Now, is this a bad thing that we do normal science in this way? It's absolutely not a bad thing. I think a lot of people misunderstand Kuhn that he's attacking normal science, and that's not the case. We couldn't do most scientific investigation if we didn't first have a paradigm in which we're working in. But the point is that we should be aware that we're working within a paradigm, and we should be willing to question the paradigm if there are good reasons to question the paradigm. And so we have to keep that in mind. And especially in a lot of modern science, we have many interlocking paradigms, right? So the paradigm that we're using to date these fossils is itself connected to paradigms about how the atom works, so that we can assume radiometric decay is constant. And so we also have to keep that in mind. And then finally, we have to distinguish between science that's going on, stuff we can investigate in front of our eyes, and what's called historical science, where we look in the past and try and use current processes to measure what happened in the past. Because we can at best presume that would have been the case, but we can't know for certain that that was the case. All right, so if you have, for example, let's say you have an um, hourglass, right, and it's on its side, and the sand is halfway in each one, so there's a half hour of sand in each side, and then you flip that up, and you walk out of the room, someone else walks in 15 minutes later, they will assume that the hourglass was flipped over 45 minutes ago because they can measure the current rate the sand is falling out. Uh, they can measure then the amount that's at the bottom, seeing it would have taken 45 minutes for that to fall, and thereby presume that the hourglass has been flipped over for 45 minutes. But they're missing a crucial piece of data, that it was actually on its side, and you flipped it over only 15 minutes ago. Well, that would be a huge thing. Or what if, for example, the room got ho hotter and the, the air inside the hourglass expanded in such a way that now, actually, the rate of the sand falling was twice as fast? Right? They might come in only 15 minutes later, see all the sand has fallen through, and assume maybe it was never flipped over, but they would have missed the last 15 minutes. Or they walked in, say, 7 minutes, saw 14 minutes of sand having gone through, but they will have presumed that 14 minutes, that it was flipped over 14 minutes ago, when actually it was only flipped over seven minutes ago and the hot air had caused a different rate of sand falling through in the past. Well, these are many different assumptions that we have to take account of whenever we're doing historical science and investigating things in the past. All right, now finally we can walk through to the relationship between theology and science, right? So theology was historically considered the queen of the sciences, while philosophy, everything that can be known by reason, was the handmaiden of theology. So it is indeed the case that nothing that can be known by reason can contradict something known by faith. But our reason could be an error, while the faith could not be an error, right? So it could right. be that if we had used reason properly, or we had had the correct data, that we would have come to the right conclusion, but either we're missing crucial evidence or we didn't apply our reason properly. And therefore, theology can help to correct an error made in our reasoning. So to give an example of actually where this did affect things in the history of the church was a debate about the uh, form of corporeality. So according to Aristotle, everything has a singular formal cause. So for humans, it would be their soul is the uh, singular form of the whole person. And so in that case, when a human dies, their body is only equivocally their body. 
right? Because the, the thing that made it their body has now left their body at the moment of death. So actually, there is an entirely new thing uh, of a corpse, which only looks like their body. It isn't actually their body, according to Aristotle. Now, that was the view of quite a number of people in the Middle Ages, including St. Thomas Aquinas, so I'm not meaning to denigrate that view. But there was also many people, such as St. Bonaventure, who argued against that view, and they argued that there must be a plurality of forms. The first has to be a form of corporeality, which makes it your body, which then a soul further informs to make it a living body. Well, why would this be important? Well, it's because it's actually a dogma of the church that Christ's body remained his body while it was in the tomb. But if the soul of Christ was separate from his body for those three days, if we have a singular form of the body, well, then that wouldn't be his body in the tomb. And so St. Bonaventure would make arguments by reason of why there has to be a distinct form of corporeality from the form of the soul. But he would make the additional argument that we are going to end up in heresy if we don't hold that opinion. And so St. Thomas had to argue in a sort of ad hoc way that there was an exception for the body of Christ, because otherwise we would fall into, into heresy there. And so he says, for the body of Christ, it still somehow maintained a relationship to its soul in such a way it maintained, it remained the body of Christ. Well, that's not the case for any other human bodies. But it seems to me that St. Bonaventure's solution works better here, and I think there's also good arguments just from reason alone to hold St. Bonaventure's view. Um, but I think from theology, it could help correct an error in reasoning here, if it's hard to determine which is correct by reasoning. So hopefully all of that made sense. And so, I know you didn't want to get into as much the Genesis account here, but I think this is the important principles we have to establish before we even begin to take up something like um, how science relates to Genesis. Yeah, and, and actually that was, in a way, one of the topics I wanted to bring up, you know, because re reading one of the encyclicals by um, Pope Leo the, the, um, 13th. Yeah, the 13th, yeah, I'll make sure I said that right, Pope Leo the 13th, you know, he, he talks about, you know, how people... Uh, of of not goodwill, I guess to say, use some of these sciences to attack sacred scripture, right? And you know, he, he writes in here, there can never, indeed, be any real discrepancy between the theologian and the physicist, as long as each confines himself within his own lines, and both are careful. And then, you know, he, he writes down here that that the that the Holy Ghost who spoke by them did not intend to teach men these things, that is to say, the essential nature of the things of the visible universe, things in no way profitable unto salvation. So, you know, I, I, I read these things uh, uh, like this, and, and, and I do struggle reconciling uh, original sin and evolution in, 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 a few, in a few ways. And just as a disclaimer, I, I am a personally a young earth creationist. I I don't believe in or haven't been convinced of evolution or human evolution, especially in in the way that the sciences and today you know proclaim it. But you know, I, I guess my my question is 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 he he writes in here <clears throat> uh, if you'll bear with me a little bit longer just to finish this. Um, you know, uh, which document is this? Okay, so. In Humanae Generis, uh, Pius the the thirteenth, right? No, Pius the twelfth. Sorry, we haven't had thirteenth yet. So Pius the twelfth writes: um, For these reasons, the teaching authority of the Church does not forbid that, in conformity with the present state of human sciences and sacred theology, research and discussions on the part of men experienced in both fields take place with regard to the doctrine of evolution. So you know, th this idea that that uh, the Catholic Church or religion in general and science are in contradiction is 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 not true i mean uh that's that's our that's yeah. that's our uh misunderstanding so I, what so, i took from providentissimus deus was the document you were reading from earlier was he says if if there appears to be an in, a, a, a contradiction between scripture and reason it's your reason that, yeah. that that's where that's yeah, where the a, fault lies it's a lack of your formation in your yeah in your reasoning yeah the, and, you interpreted the bible incorrectly or or something along those lines yeah so so while while you know we, we've had many great catholics throughout history who have been 
the you know foremost in science research and development get getting back to uh in a long way about coming back to original sin and evolution he also writes uh pope Pius the 12 when however there is question of another conjectural opinion namely polygenism the children of the church by no means enjoy such liberty for the faithful cannot embrace that opinion which maintains that either after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their original or their origin through natural generation from him as from the parent of all, or that Adam represents a certain number of first parents. So, you know, I, I read that, and, and many times I've heard evolutionists and, and even theist, the, theistic evolutionists say, you know, God created Adam first, but he could have also created other human beings, right? In, in that time. Well, my, my, my problem with that is if that's true, or God at a later date imbued a soul after the human evolutionary process, you would have different lines of, of people today, I would assume, that, don't, that their parents may have not been guilty of the original sin in which we all... Would, you know, would, would it surprise you to learn that, moder- that most modern scientific evolutionists do believe that all of humanity comes from at least, now they're not ready to say one single set of parents, but they yeah. do say one female progenitor yeah. that, that, that every human being on earth can trace their lineage to. Right. And then, yeah. you so, know, and, and then with that, you know, it, it also to me would run in, in contradiction with what Paul writes in Romans, for as by the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. So also the obedience of one, many shall be made just. So how do, how do you get in? How do you reconcile, um, or, or how do evolutionaries, I should say, reconcile this idea of original sin and human evolution, at least the, at least the Catholic theologians? Yeah. Well, I think the problem that many Catholics are approaching this with is that they've taken evolution as a first principle now. Right, so they've taken, well, evolution is necessarily true, and Genesis also necessarily has to be true. But if one has to give way to the other, they're going to push a much more metaphorical interpretation of Genesis in order to hold up their literal interpretation of evolution. But we first have to ask, right, is evolution even a correct by reason. I think there are many good reasons to doubt it by reason. Now, are there many good reasons to believe it? Absolutely. I think there are good arguments for evolution, but there are also good arguments against evolution. And so if something isn't on firm ground by reason, as we showed earlier, right, nothing can be 100% on firm ground when it's only done by experimentation, especially when we're looking at historical science, We've now introduced a whole nother variable of problems. And then creation science, unfortunately heavily done by Protestants, but still often uh, done by many people quite well, has shown that there are other ways to interpret much of that data, right? And so if there's another paradigm in which we can put that data, I think we ought to prefer preserving a traditional reading of Genesis with this better, with this perfectly good way to explain the scientific data and that we ought to reconcile the two in that way. And we also need to take up the way in which we should interpret scripture. Because a lot of people will say, oh, well, as Catholics, we believe that there's these spiritual senses of scripture and therefore we don't have to believe the literal. But the problem is that the spiritual senses are grounded in the literal And in fact, when it comes to establishing Catholic doctrine, we say that we actually only establish doctrine in the strict sense through the literal. Now, what do we actually mean by the literal? Because it isn't the exact same thing we mean by the modern use of that word. In Latin here, it's the litera or the letter. So really, this is the sense of the letter or the plain meaning of the text, right? So sometimes the plain meaning of the text won't be what we would now call the literal, right? So when we say, for example, God walked in the garden, well, obviously the literal sense of that, according to the letter, can't be that God had legs and walked around because God doesn't have a body, right? So clearly that cannot be the literal sense of the text. The literal sense is that God was present there in the garden. Same with um, 
when we talk about in Job, for example, right, when it says that the angels measured the foundations of the earth, we don't believe that angels literally took measuring tapes and measured the lengths of the foundations of the world, right? The sense according to the letter is not that there was a measuring tape that the angels had, right? It's Did we lose him? Oh, son of a gun. Okay. Well, I, I, while we're, while we're trying to get uh, Gideon back, just a quick interject here. I, I am actually an, an evolution guy and I, I don't see much of good reason to not believe in, in the current theories of evolution. I think that the idea that because a scientific endeavor is not complete, that it, it doesn't, it's, it's just as good as, as if it didn't, uh, if it didn't exist at all. I mean, if we look at, for example, our study of the nature of gravity is really where the scientific revolution begins with gravity. Um, Isaac Newton, even going before Isaac Newton, we could talk about Galileo Galilei, but really Isaac Newton's discovery of the law of gravity um, is the huge watershed event in the scientific revolution. And he is able to link a theory of why apples fall to the ground to why does the earth stay in orbit around the, I mean, the, the moon stay in orbit around the earth. So, uh, and I, I, I was kind of going to interrupt you a little bit, but since you dropped off, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in. I, so just full disclosure, I am actually a, a believer in the current theory of evolution um, and in the, you know, the, the universe being what I guess we currently amount to about 13 and a half billion years old. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's the case that because a scientific endeavor is incomplete, um, that there might be current holes in the theory that, there's just as good a reason to not believe in it that there is to believe in it. And I start with the theory of gravity. I mean, gravity is really where the scientific revolution takes off is with Newton's um, co um, codifying his law of gravity, a law that we still use today to put uh, men in orbit around the earth and, and to the moon and return them safely back to earth. Um, when we, so that gravity is what about 500 something years old. Newton discovers that in the middle of the 16th century. And uh, even though he had, written a, a mathematical formula with which we could under, understand how the mechanism of gravity so well that we still use it today. Newton really never understood what gravity was exactly, what, the, what, what it exactly it is that keeps the, the, the moon in orbit around the earth. And that question wouldn't be answered for another, you know, almost 450 years until uh, 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 Albert Einstein would come up with his general theory of relativity. And he would talk about, you know, space-time being curved and things moving along curves and things like that. And it's a, it's a theory that works very well with, um, with observation and experimentation, but even as well as it works, we still call it a theory of, of, of uh, general relativity. And e even though we've plugged so many holes in with gravity over the course of 500 years, there are still very big questions about gravity that have not been answered yet. Probably one of the most fundamental being we have no quantum mechanical description of gravity, um, such to the point where if you try to cr come up with a quantum mechanical description of gravity, the equations of quantum mechanics and the equations of general relativity break down and are nonsensical and just don't work with one another. So there's very good indications that even a theory as well developed and as and as old in the human endeavor of science as gravity has huge holes in it that haven't been plugged yet. Nonetheless, I think there's still good reason to go along with the, the with a relativistic understanding of gravity until we have good reason to do something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But we have to also ask: Are there good reasons? not to believe that it is the case or that are there is there another model that explains all the data just as well and for this either of those examples right i'm not aware of any theory that explains all of the data just as well right but we have to ask that question because i think in many of issues of historical science where this is really the area where we're looking at and trying to argue against um a literal reading of genesis that I think in a lot of those, there actually have been established very good ways to read much of the data. Now, is it as explanatory as the theories proposed by mainstream science? Well, I don't think so, but they also have far less resources, far less time, far less scientists, and so on, that we shouldn't expect that. The fact they have been able to explain as much as they have 
using the biblical text as their paradigm, to me shows that using the Bible as a guide for doing science is actually a very effective tool. Yeah, and I and I know on uh, your your appearance on Pints with Aquinas, you you know you talk about the unanimous consent of the fathers, and mm-hmm. um, you know how that relates to to Genesis, and and I know that it, you know the fathers may have deferred on subjects of the material world in which it, you know which was dependent their understanding was dependent upon the time in which they lived, right? Which I know a lot of people make that, you know, argument as far as, uh, as a counter argument to what, to what you had talked about, the unanimous consent of the father as well. You know, they understood the world in a certain way at that time. So we're not obligated to believe that. However, when you bring in sacred scripture, we are also, you know, told that at a minimum, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, at a minimum, we, we are at least to hold in a very high esteem, the unanimous, unanimous consent of the father's and maybe, uh, and this is what, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it can even be considered infallible, the unanimous, unanimous <clears throat> excuse me, consent of the fathers. Um, and as far, as far as I can see, they had a unanimous consent on a, a young earth and, and didn't hold to, to, ev- to an evolutionary mindset. Granted, yeah. you know, that field so, has developed over the past 2,000 years, but, but I'll, I'll let you speak on, on that aspect of it. Yeah, so the specific decrees have been done a number of times by the church. I brought up part of Trent that Jimmy said was merely disciplinary. I actually don't think that that is the case. But all you have to do is go over to the confession of faith from Trent. So this is what was people were bound to believe. And part of that is that the fathers are infallible on the interpretation of scripture when it comes to matters of faith and morals. And I'd have actually sort of shocked that Jimmy disagreed with that, because that's pretty well agreed upon. So the first argument that's usually made against this is that some of the fathers did not hold this view, but that's simply not the case. There is some disagreement among the fathers on how to read Genesis 1, But even there, the question is, are we reading this as a literal six 24-hour days or as instantaneous? There's no one who believed in long ages. Uh, You can check the fathers that supposedly believed in long ages like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, or Cyprian. Just check the original context on all of those, and you'll see that they're talking about the length of human history lasting 7,000 years. And even then, that opinion ended up being rejected by the church. Um... So let's turn then to what about the rest of that? Because Genesis 1 isn't the primary area of debate, right? If we just had Genesis 1 and that was it, I mean, we could argue Adam still lived 100, 200,000 years ago. No, the issue is, is that we have genealogies that connect us from Adam to Abraham, and no one disputes really that Abraham was somewhere around 2,000, 1,800 years ago, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so it establishes us in a pretty good accuracy to where Adam, when Adam lived, right? And if people want to debate the exact chronology, that's fine. The point is, whatever chronology you do at this point ends you up in a young earth. You also have um, a global flood, you have the Tower of Babel, you have cities being built in the second generation of humans existing. These are all things that don't line up whatsoever with the contemporary record of the development of humans. So these are, it's a much bigger issue than Genesis 1. A lot of people don't take seriously the much bigger issue of Genesis 2 through 11. And those chronologies and the global flood and a literal reading of Babel Those were all held unanimously by the fathers. There's not a single father that departs from that. Now, maybe this was only because of the science at the time, right? And not the um, theological view. So that's actually not the case. So I'll read right here a quote from St. Augustine from City of God 1210. I read this in my debate with Jimmy and he never responded to it. So I'll read it here again. Let us then omit the conjectures of men who know not what they say when they speak on the nature and origin of the human race. 
they are deceived, too, by those highly mendacious documents, which profess to give the history of many thousands of years, though, reckoning by the sacred writings, we find that not 6,000 years have yet passed. So Augustine shows he's well aware that there are pagan chronological sources, which contradict a literal reading of the chronology of Genesis. And he rejects that on the basis of, um, not reason, but on the basis of the reckoning of the sacred scriptures. Now, perhaps we could say that um, in that same um, chapter I just cited, Augustine goes on to argue that the different chronologies contradict one another and therefore should be rejected. And so maybe he was just rejecting it on reason, because he does use reason there. However, no one is objecting to the use of reason as an apologetic for Scripture. And Augustine is doing that. But before he makes an apologetic for Scripture, he first rejects, just on the basis of Scripture alone, that the world could possibly be more than 6,000 years old in his day. Well, yeah. there's also, you know, going back to Providentissimus Deus, and you quoted mm -hmm. from that earlier, number 19 in Providentissimus Deus says, the unshrinking, de the unshrinking defense of the Holy Scriptures, however, does not require that we should equally uphold all the opinions which each of the fathers or the more recent interpreters have put forth in explaining it. For it may be that in commenting on passages where physical matters occur, they have sometimes expressed the ideas of their own times and thus made statements which in these days have been abandoned as incorrect. Hence, in their interpretations, we must carefully note that which they lay down as belonging to faith or as intimately connected with faith what they are unanimous in. For in those things which do not come under the obligation of faith, the saints were at liberty to hold divergent opinions just as we ourselves are. Yeah, but Augustine just said that this is a matter of faith, right? Because Augustine be says this yeah. is reckoning by sacred writings. Now, very frequently... The Genesis, the church fathers use the theory of the four elements to interpret Genesis 1. I think the most beautiful attempt at this was St. Basil's Hexameron. Um, now, that would be them taking their scientific views and trying to interpret how the Genesis account could have happened, given that they think that this is established by reason. But on the matter of the chronology of Scripture, they're not saying... This is what seems to be best according to the, this is what accords with reason. Now we're going to use it to interpret scripture. Now they say, this is what scripture says. Can reason also confirm it? Yeah, well, you know, so I wanted to wrap with a story about these, this Canadian group of atheists who are out to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was not a historical person. Now it is almost accepted everywhere. I, w I don't want to say universally, but serious historians, even secular and atheist historians all pretty much agree. Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person. We're talking about first century Palestine, a place where people did not write a lot of historical biographies about people. So the fact that anybody wrote anything at all about this, this Nazarene carpenter probably means he was a historical and real person who lived in a real time and a real place. We have enough, you know, first century contemporary, even extra biblical sources that talk about Jesus of Nazareth. But this guy's going to get up and he's going to prove that none of that is true. Okay, now I'm, I'm interested because this I got to see. And he basically starts from the premises that we all know that uh, religions are made up and that uh, religion, that religious people don't ground anything in truth. So he starts from that position. And I thought, well, how can you start from that position when that's what your experiment is designed to prove? I mean, that seems kind of conclusion selective a little bit. And he says, you know, we go down the list of, of men like Muhammad who claimed to have saw, uh, seen an angel in a cave. And then we go down to Joseph Smith, who claims he saw an angel in the woods. And so that's, that's proof that, you know, religious people make everything up. And I thought, well, yeah, but Muhammad and Joseph Smith were historical people. So what are you saying here? How have you, <laughs> I kind of watched this guy's whole, this guy's whole deal. And at the end, I thought it was really funny because he said, and this is the, this is the research that you all have funded. And I thought, oh man, they paid for this. Oh, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard mm -hmm. in my life. But you see, he starts from a position and then he designs the experiment so that he'll get the outcome he wants. And that's not science. Science is when you start from a, there's a problem with the current theory. And then you ask, you develop a question that, well, what is that problem and how could we answer it? Okay. And the question's got to be specific enough to be falsifiable. 
If I, I, I will, will the ball accelerate towards the earth proportional to the inverse of the square of the distance between the two? That's the question. Yes or no. And it's a falsifiable question because if I drop that ball and it falls at any other speed other than the one that my hypothesis says it will, we know that my hypothesis was false. That's a falsifiable, that's scientific. But when you start the experiment such that um, for my experiment, we're not going to take any of the, of the uh, first century uh, eyewitness accounts in the Gospels or in the Pauline letters. Okay, why? Well, because they all believe in Jesus. And so, so basically you can only be evidence if you're proof that, it's, that, that Jesus is not historical. You're not taking your hypothesis and putting it under stress to see if it breaks. And that's really what the scientific yeah. method is involved to do. So that's an example in which atheist people have used this faulty reasoning to arrive at a conclusion that they really, really want to be true. But unfortunately, it doesn't answer any questions about how in the world did all of these people just start worshiping this first century Nazarene carpenter while all of a sudden forgetting that none of them have ever heard of him before. Um, it doesn't answer the question of why St. Paul would write the letters that he wrote. It doesn't answer the question of, it doesn't answer, it, it actually raises many more questions than anything it proposes to answer. And I, I, I saw that and I thought, well, there's an example right there of why using good reasoning is important and why it can lead you astray and to, and to strange conclusions, then you don't have to be a quote-unquote religious nut, as they like to say, in order to see some of this faulty reasoning and use some of this faulty logic. Well, <clears throat> yeah, uh, quickly on that, I just wanted to say that um, I have an echo on your side. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Is that me? Here we go. Okay, I think we're good now. Yeah. Okay. okay. Oh, so um, essentially, wait, it's still going. Sorry. Um, How do you mute it? Do you want me to mute me or mute him? No, mute here. We'll just do it. This. All right. Yeah. So I wanted to quickly just point out that I think that this is the problem, right? That science can make testable predictions, right? That we can then falsify. But we've now presumed, we've now confused that, that, that particular technique with a whole bunch more, right? So we, there could be that there's two um, systems that will make the same testable predictions. Or there could be something that's true that doesn't have testable predictions as part of it, right? So nothing that we can't verify through this method is subject to science. Now, does that mean it's outside the realm of reason? No, it's not outside the realm of reason because there's many things we can reach by reason that are outside of this particular method, the scientific method that we use to test things. And I think the big problem in quite a bit of this discussion today, we're saying that faith and reason aren't incompatible, is that we've confused reason with this particular method. And so that's my primary concern here. You're still muted on your end. Before we before we wrap up here, I just wanted to read something from the Catechism on uh, faith and science, and then I'll I'll uh, let you speak to it. It, it talks about in uh, paragraph one fifty nine, faith and science. Though faith is above reason, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason, since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind. God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Consequently, methodical research in all branches of knowledge, provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same God. The humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God in spite of himself, for it is God, the conserver of all things who made them what they are so so my question to you here here at the end is uh what is the proper relationship between science and and a and a catholic of uh goodwill what is what is the proper relationship that we should hold yeah so i think that it 
Sorry, there's still an echo on. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so I think the proper relationship of the two is there's lots of good things that we can draw from um, the scientific method, right? We can make testable predictions and we can discover true things through that. But we also have to realize, first of all, the relationship of the scientific method to the rest of human reason, right? That we're simply making particular testable predictions. Then we have to take those testable predictions and put them into a proper paradigm so we can even do investigation from there. And at this point, we're now not in the realm so much of testable predictions, but of working things through with reason and logic and trying to figure out what is true about the world. And then finally, we have to then place the whole enterprise of reason, of philosophy, um, as subject to science, as subject to theology, rather, right? Theology is the queen of the sciences. Natural science is not the queen of the sciences. We now say today, frequently, that a testable hypothesis can override the conclusions of logic. Well, that would actually place things in the wrong order. We have to have the correct hierarchical order of different disciplines of knowledge and figure out which derive from the others so that we can reach the correct conclusions. Now, is science a wonderful thing? It absolutely is a great thing. I'm very much a promoter of genuine science. I'm not anti-science at all. My only concern is that we use proper reasoning when it comes to science and don't let science fall out of its proper place within the order of reasoning. Gideon Lazar, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. I'm sorry we had such technical issues. And I, I hope we're gonna uh, we 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 could get him uh, maybe ironed out. Maybe we could get you to come back, and we can even talk further about this or even some other some other interesting topics. And yeah, and and before we end, I was just gonna ask Gideon uh, to anybody that's listening, where can they find some more information about you and and the work that you do? Yeah, so if people like me, they can find my uh, Twitter. I'm at bizcat on Twitter. They can find me on YouTube. I'm the Byzantine Scotist on YouTube. And if you like the work I'm doing, you can support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash bizcat, B-Y-Z-C-A-T. And you can also find my link to my Patreon on my Twitter or my YouTube. Okay, yeah, and if you send us that information, we can link it in the show notes here. Gideon Lazar, thanks so much for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, thank y'all for joining us, and be sure to tune in again. Not quite sure when we're coming back. Are we taking a week off, or are we coming back next week? No, we will be off next week. We'll be off next week, but stay tuned because we've got some more exciting shows coming up. Gideon, thank you so much for joining us. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and God bless. God bless. Oh,